Well, good morning. If you're new to Faith Bible Church, when the last couple, within the last couple of weeks, you don't know me, I've been gone. My wife and I have been in the Netherlands visiting our middle son and his wife and little girl as they are temporarily there for work and uh, had a good time, but it's always good to get home to sweet corn and tomatoes and cucumbers. You know, being a native Iowan, I can say this, you know, we, we're our, we always fall back on our corn. We don't have mountains, but boy, do we good to have good sweet corn. It's just who we are, but we do. It's good to be back. We are starting a new series this morning in the book of Daniel and encourage you to go to the Old Testament with me to the book of Daniel. If you're not familiar with Daniel and you have a hard copy of the Bible, feel free to look it up in the front and get a page number. Um, or if you have an e-device, you can certainly get to it. But we're going to the book of Daniel. Daniel is a prophet. And a biblical prophet is one who would bring a word from God to people. Sometimes that word from God would be a word that was directly for the moment. It would be a foretelling of something from God. Sometimes it had something to do with the future, a foretelling. And we're going to see in the book of Daniel that much of what Daniel prophesied has already occurred, but there are some things that Daniel prophesied that still await fulfillment. Then we will dig into those chapters as, as the book unfolds. Another aspect of the book of Daniel is that we get a glimpse into Daniel's life. We get to see the prophet. And we get to see Daniel, everyday life, and how God uses him, and why God uses him. Now, this particular book, Bible teachers refer to as a post-exilic prophet. That means that it was after the exile. Remember back to Israel's history with me. Before the people of Israel were going to enter the land of promise that God had said that he would give to them, Right at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it's recorded for us in Deuteronomy chapters 28, 29, and 30, that God took the people and directed Moses to split them into two and have half of them sit on top of Mount Ebal and half of them sit on top of Mount Gerizim, more like hills. And he used that as an object lesson. As a visual opportunity to really drive home a point. So God instructed Moses to turn to half the people and say, if you obey me in the land, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to bless you. You will have phenomenal crops. You will prosper and you will have peace in the land. Then he turned to the other half of the people on the other hillside and said, but if you disobey me, you're going to have terrible crops. You are not going to prosper. And I will actually send in 
foreign invaders who will come and take you captive. Well, we know that Israel as a whole did not heed that warning. The northern tribes of the people of Israel were referred to as Israel. The southern tribes were referred to as Judah. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern tribes. Over a hundred years later, the Babylonians are going to come in and conquer the southern tribes referred to as Judah. Here, Daniel is writing, he's prophesying after the exile. It's post-exilic. We know that the Babylonian exile took place in waves, the first of which was in 605 B.C. The main conquering happened in 586 B.C. Daniel was part of that first wave. And Daniel is ripped from his home, taken to a foreign land, put in a position where he had to choose. Am I going to live for God or not? And as we look at Daniel's life, we're going to see the main theme of this whole book unfold. We're going to see that God takes believers and and allows believers to live in a rebellious world, but for a purpose, to magnify him. To glorify him as he sovereignly directs the events of history toward his climax. Toward his promised rule. And in the process of seeing that theme develop through the book of Daniel. And as we see these glimpses into Daniel's life. This morning we're going to see one of the main reasons why God chooses to use Daniel. Why God chooses to use Daniel as his tool. And that reason is this. Because Daniel refuses to compromise toward sin. I'm going to read chapter 1 out loud. You can follow along in your copy of the Bible, Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food, from the wine which he drank. 
and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Dan, Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence, and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them. In this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days their appearance seemed better. And they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food. And the wine they were to drink. And kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths. God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. And we're going to see from this account, and we'll see it again in the book, Daniel and his three friends, mightily used by God, empowered by God. And one of the main reasons why God uses them and empowers them is because they refuse to compromise toward sin. Sometimes compromise is a good thing. You all who know me know I hate to shop. I, I just despise it. it. When I hear of a mall closing, it's like, I don't care. I, I just don't like shopping. If it was up to me, 
uh, I would go like once every five years and buy five years worth of clothes. I just, let's just get it done and get it done today. Give me five pairs of pants. Give me six shirts. Give me, you know, and let's just get it done. And then I don't have to think about it for five years. My wife doesn't like that about me. And she doesn't like to shop much either, but she likes it more than I do. And sometimes we have to compromise in our marriage. Like Barbara likes going to Ikea. I don't really care for Ikea, but we've worked on a compromise. They have this area right at the front of the store where you can sit in nice comfortable chairs and sip coffee and eat 99 cent meatballs. And so I go and I sip coffee and read my book. And when Barbara is done shopping, she sends me a text message and says, meet me at the check, cash, the checkout line. I sip my last bit of coffee. I meet her in the checkout line. It's marital bliss. And we walk out. <laughs> Compromise. It's sometimes a good thing. But not compromise towards sin. And we're going to find Daniel and his three friends in a position where it would be easy to sin. I mean, who's going to know? Uh, there's not going to be somebody writing a letter back to Daniel's family and saying, do you know what your son is doing? It's not going to happen. I mean, they've been taken captive. They've been exiled to a foreign land. It'd be easy just to go along with all of the rest of the captives. And yet, Daniel and his three buddies refuse to compromise towards sin. And because of that, God's going to use them mightily. And he's going to empower them. And that's what we want to begin seeing here in chapter 1. Now as the chapter begins, we're going to see uh, a truth that we see in the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures. And that is this. If a person is God's child, as New Testament Christians... We become God's child when we put our trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Believing that Jesus is God who loves us enough that he died in our stead on the cross and rose from the dead proving that he is God. And when we put our trust in him, our faith in him, our dependence in him, transferring the dependence of our life from myself, thinking I can be a good enough person to have merit with God and put my trust in Jesus Christ. At that point, I become a child of God. If a person is a child of God, God does not allow us to continue in sin. He will discipline us. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. And we see it here in Daniel chapter 1 that God disciplines believers when they continue in sin. So Here in Daniel, these first seven verses, that's the truth that we see. Notice with me verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now that's important. It wasn't just by a set of bad circumstances that the Babylonians came in and took the southern tribes of Israel, Judah, captive. It wasn't just, oh man, was that a bad day? This was 
all underneath God's sovereign control. It says the Lord gave the king into the Babylonians' hands. Why? It is his hand of discipline. God told them. The people of Israel clearly knew. Deuteronomy chapter 28, 29 and 30. If you disobey me, you will not have peace in the land. I will send a foreign invader in to take you captive. And here we find Judah, just like their brothers to the north who had been taken over a hundred years earlier by the Assyrians, going after other gods and not honoring God's word. So God brings discipline. Verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar. That's another name for Babylon. So King Nebuchadnezzar, under God's allowance, comes in, takes the first wave Captive in 605 BC, Daniel would be part of that first wave. Daniel's ministry, if he was 16 when he was taken in 605, he uh, would be about 85 years old at the end of his ministry in around 536. So that's kind of the time span of this book. Nebuchadnezzar takes some of the spoils of war. He actually goes into the temple and takes some of those gold utensils that are used in the worship of God. Brings them back to Babylon and utilizes them in his worship. And he not only takes material spoils of war, he takes people. In fact, in verse 3, he says, The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of the officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. Here's what's going on. The Babylonians have come in and conquered Judah. But how are they going to maintain their presence? They could do it militarily and keep a strong military force there. But another way of doing that is actually changing the hearts and the minds of the people. And so what Nebuchadnezzar does is he takes the choicest, the brightest, the sharpest. And is going to take them back with him to Babylon. And he is going to infiltrate their minds and their hearts with everything Babylon. They're going to learn their literature. They're going to learn their language. And they're going to be treated as if they are royalty. We see down in verse 5 that the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food. From the wine which he drank. And appointed that they should be educated three years. At the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. You see there's a mentoring program going on here. And after they have been fully acclimated to Babylonian life. They eventually would be sent back to Judah to rule 
underneath the auspices of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, right at the end of these verses, of verses 1 through 7, we say that the Babylonians changed the names of these four guys. You say they want to cut them off from everything they've known. Daniel, whose name it meant God is my judge, his name was changed to Belteshazzar, protect the king. Hananiah, whose name means God has been gracious, his name is changed to Shadrach, I'm fearful. Mishael, whose names mean whose name means who is what God is. They did a little play on words with him. They changed his name to Meshach, which means who is what Aku is, their moon god. And finally, Azariah, whose name meant God has helped. His name is changed to Abednego, servant of Nebo, who was their god of vegetation. These four young men, while God is disciplining the nation, while God has brought discipline upon Judah, these four men as individuals, we're going to find will still wholeheartedly serve their God. But as is true in the old and in the new, when God's people deliberately choose to remain in their sin, God's going to bring discipline. On the 4th of July, Barbara and I came back from the Netherlands visiting our children. Oh, we had a great time. Life's very different there. And I noticed so many differences. One of which was when we would come up to a stoplight, everybody just stands at the stoplight waiting for the light to say that it's okay to go. Even if there's no one around, everyone just stands there. Most places in the U.S., if you come up to a light and it says don't walk, but if you look both ways and there's nothing in sight, not even a cow, um, a lot of people will go across the street. Not in the Netherlands. You'd stand there for two minutes. No one's moving. I finally asked Ethan, why is everybody so obedient to the law? And Ethan said, There's cameras everywhere. They have some friends that recently relocated, uh, or new friends that have relocated to their little community. They're also Americans, but they've been overseas for 10 years in international business. And they just kind of ignored the laws. Just did what they wanted to do. And a few weeks later, they literally got hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of tickets in the mail. You see, when you ignore what is right, reckoning will come. And that's very true between God and his children. And it's important for us as Christians to remember that. If I am God's child, he promises to discipline me 
when I continue in sin. We see two uh, really clear passages of that in the New Testament. There's others as well. I'm going to read the first is 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 29 through 32. This is the passage that we often focus on when we take the Lord's table. In the Corinthian church, there was all kinds of bitterness. There was division, people looking down on their brothers and sisters in Christ. And when they gathered to take the Lord's table together, often it would happen on a Sunday evening. They would have a meal together on agape feast, and then they would take communion at the end of that. And so they were coming together in a sense, in this symbolic time to show that as they had a vertical relationship with God, that they were enjoying a horizontal relationship with their brothers and sisters in Christ because of their bond in Him. And yet, there's all kinds of bitterness there and unforgiveness. And the Apostle Paul says, don't come to the Lord's table with anger in your heart or looking down on your brother or sister in Christ. And if you do... God's going to bring discipline upon you. And he spells that out starting in verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Now that verse is not saying that all sickness is the result of God's discipline. But on the flip side, Sometimes God uses illness to get our attention as a form of discipline when we are not willing to turn from our sin. In fact, he said here, some even sleep, which is a euphemism for premature death. Hebrews chapter 12 also talks about discipline and puts it in terms of how a loving parent deals with their children. Verse 9. We had earthly fathers to discipline us. We respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time and seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. So in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, for the people of Israel, for the church, the principle is the same. God disciplines believers when they continue in sin. And Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah are swept up purposefully under God's sovereign hand as part of his discipline upon Judah as a nation. And yet in the midst of this trial, Those four guys, as individuals, are going to show that they are completely yielded to what God has for them. Yielded to his word. Yielded to his will. They are not willing to compromise toward sin. And that's what we see in verses 8 through 13. In fact, we see that God utilizes believers when they are not willing to compromise towards sin. It's interesting as we read verses 1 through 7 that we don't see the four rebelling against their name changes. At least it's not recorded for us. We don't see them 
pushing back against having to learn Chaldean or study Chaldean literature. But, verse 8 says, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. You see, they were willing to compromise when it didn't mean that they'd be sinning. How would it be sin if somebody else calls you by a different name? How would it be sin for them to read some literature from a foreign nation? It wasn't sin. They compromised. But when it came to them sinning before their God, they were not willing to compromise towards sin. And so Daniel here in verse 8 seeks permission from Ashpenaz to not eat that food. Verse 8. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might, might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor. And compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And we see that God's going to utilize Daniel and the other three. Because they were not willing to compromise toward sin. Now, Ashpenaz is a little worried. Because he said, you know, I'm laying my neck on the line here. If, if I don't give you the prescribed food that the king has said that I'm supposed to give you. And you come out and you look all gaunt and weak. and uh, It's going to be my head because I'm the one who's going to have disobeyed the king. And, and Daniel says, hey, let's just try a trial. Ten day free trial. If you don't like it, we'll, you know, you do with us as you please. And Aspenaz goes for it. Verse 12. Please test your servants for 10 days. And let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. You see, most likely this food would have been prepared by Gentiles Really good chance it had been involved in their pagan worship before consumption. But clearly it violated the Old Testament dietary restrictions that God had set for Israel to observe. And Daniel says, we're not going there. I'm not going to do that. Because it would render me impure before God. It would have been so easy. All of the other youths that have been brought from Judah, they are not, they're not worried about it. Oh, I mean, think about the circumstances. Our lives are on the line. We better do what they say. We're captives. And who's really going to know anyway? But Daniel was not willing to compromise toward sin. When my wife Barbara and I lived in Dallas, Texas um, many years ago, we lived there for five years, Barbara worked for a dentist for five years. 
And it was kind of a high-end, he was a high-end dentist. He specialized in a lot of crowns and bridges and, and they did a lot of their own lab work. And he soon came to realize what I had already come to realize that my wife is, is pretty mechanical. She's, she's really much better than me. She, if anything's broken in our house, if it gets fixed in our house, it's because my wife fixes it. And so, she got stuck doing some really yucky jobs. And one of the jobs she had to do is when the sinks stopped flowing, she would have to take them apart and empty the plaster traps from all that lab work that they did. And she said it was just gross. It smelled like rotten eggs. She hated that job. But it had to be done. In order for everything to properly function, you had to get that yuck out you had to clean out the plaster traps and bottom line in order for God to use Daniel in the three in order for God to use you in order for God to use me we also have to be willing to get the yuck out of our lives we have to be willing to clean out the plaster traps We have to be willing to call sin, sin, and not let it sit in our lives. Now, the Apostle Paul has a lot to say about this in the New Testament. And one of the main sections of scripture where he talks about this is Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. Some of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And in Romans 6, the Apostle Paul makes a very important distinction about sin. He says in Romans 6 that before a person is a Christian, we are we're we're bound to our sin nature. We really don't have much of a uh, we don't have the ability not to sin. That bent towards sin that's within us is going to win. But at the moment a person becomes a Christian and puts their faith in the person of Jesus Christ, we die to who we used to be. And by that, Paul is saying that we die to our bondage to our sin nature. We still have a sin nature. We still sin. But we don't have to anymore. What happens is we tend to get into a sin cycle. Maybe you struggle with your temper. And you've lost your temper here. And you lost your temper here. And you've lost your temper here. And you start thinking, I might as well just lose my temper. Because I always do. I don't have any choice. Paul says, yes, you do. Because now that I'm a Christian, I'm not bound to my sin nature anymore. I don't have to sin. He says it this way in verse 11 of Romans 6. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So in chapter 6, he says, we don't have to sin. In chapter 7, he says there's this battle going on between a desire to live for God and a desire still to sin. But then we get to chapter 8, and he says, yeah, but you've got the Holy Spirit dwelling in you as a Christian. And the Spirit of God is the one that actually enables you to live for God. Now, back in chapter 6, in him saying, you don't have to sin, he does say this in verses 12 and 13, therefore... Do not let sin reign in your body so that you obey its lusts. 
And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You see, there is a responsibility on our part to empty the plaster traps, to get the crud out of our lives. Am I able to live for God in my own strength? No way. That's why Romans 8 is there. It takes the Spirit of God being in control of my life and your life to allow the life of Christ to be replicated through us. But there is a component of this that is our responsibility to say no to sin, to refuse to compromise towards sin. And that's what Daniel does. And when Daniel refuses to compromise towards sin, God uses him. He not only uses him, we see in the end of the chapter, he empowers him. In fact, in verses 14 through 21, we see that God empowers believers when they refuse to compromise towards sin. He not only uses them, he not only utilizes them, but he empowers them. Look with me at verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better than they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence and every branch of literature and wisdom Daniel even understood all the kinds of visions and dreams. And we'll see that unfold in the book. That God uses them and he empowers them. And he uses them for his good. Because they were not willing to compromise towards sin. For five or six years, roughly, my mother and father lived in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And during those years, my mom worked at a Dayton's department store. She loved it there because she worked in the women's clothing department. I used to like to kid my mom. I called her Amelda Marcos because she really liked clothes. When I had to help her transition into assisted living, she had so much stuff she'd never even opened. And oh, did I have fun with that. And she loved working there. I'm surprised she brought a paycheck home. I'm surprised she just didn't take everything in merchandise. But she did. Uh, They were paid on commission. And they were supposed to follow a set of criteria for how they got their commission. One day a lady came up to her cash register with a $400 coat. Mom had not helped her at all. She just, this lady walked in, picked out the coat, went up the cash register and bought it. It's a surgical strike. That's how I like to shop. Boom, boom, out of there. And that's what she did. Now, when that happens, what the employee is supposed to do is ring that up as a general sale. And then everyone shares in the commission. The problem was in that store, nobody was doing that. People were just taking those that were supposed to be shared and ringing it up under their coat as if they had helped the client and were pocketing the money. And because 
My mother had not been following what everybody else was doing. Her, her numbers weren't as good. Well, this day that this lady came up with this $400 coat, unbeknownst to my mother, another employee was standing behind looking. And uh, the lady came up. Mom and the other lady knew mom hadn't helped her at all. Mom rang it up as a general sale. She did not take credit for the sale. The commission was shared amongst them all. And later on, that lady came to my mom and said, I didn't. Why did you do that? And mom had a chance to talk with her about who she was and, and her faith in Christ. You see, oftentimes, in our minds, we could sin. Who's going to know? But when we refuse to compromise towards sin, God empowers us and he uses us. In mighty ways. And that's what we're going to see. Not only in chapter 1. But as we go through this book. God using Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. Because of their willingness not to compromise towards sin. If you're here today. And if you don't know if you're right with God or not. Uh, we've got some material we'd love to put into your hands. You can just stop back. Our prayer room is right behind you. You can just stop in there. One of our leaders will be back there, one of our elders, and, and just say, hey, can I have that book that Pastor Steve was talking about? You can just go to the first chapter of that and take out your own Bible and look up verses that show you how you can know for sure that you're right with God. Or maybe you just want to spend some time in prayer today. One of our elders will be behind in the prayer room to pray with you. Father, we thank you for these verses. We thank you for the encouragement to us from the lives of Daniel and his friends of our need not to compromise towards sin either. We praise you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.